I left in the middle. Well, you know, there's the, the, the other aspect of this is <laughs> the one. So you were a songwriter at this point. You were hired as a songwriter in L.A. So you weren't primarily recording there. You were, no, but, you but were... they gave me this job, which paid me 75 bucks a week, which is like getting 500 now or something, uh -huh. to... Uh, uh, to be the junior A and R guy because they, because of the way I'd been, you know, constructing and recording and inventing the crap with all the tape machines, they, they said, "Well, you're a songwriter, but you're a producer. We gotta, we gotta train you to be a producer." You're. And so what was the training to be a producer in those training, days? What, going to pick up doing? weed for, you know. <laughs> that's what that yeah. was. Even or though. I'd sit in the okay, the tape recorder would go. The thing would go around, and they didn't have auto locators, so you'd get make these little flags, and when the tape would end, you'd stick the flag in there, and that's how you knew where to go back. And uh -huh. so you'd go back to the flag, and you had to stop the machine right there. And then the stone guys would go do it. And so I had to stay really sober a lot because everyone else was so fucking high. So then once, yeah, that was interesting. That was as a producer. So that was as a producer. So you were. Well, that was how I was training to be a producer. Yeah. Very and I did a few things. I did this one band for another label that I started and producing. That's what and that involved at that time. What it meant to be. A well, producer. and I would watch whatever all the producers did, which basically would be, you know, have the best hash. And that was really yeah. what was going on. <coughs> and they would be pals with the musicians, and they'd be like sort of cheerleaders, and they'd take an ungodly amount of time getting it to sound good, and then it would sound great. But you're, I mean, you're, these days you're a fairly go-to guy for technical recording stuff. So what? I don't know. I mean, I don't know shit about technical stuff. I mean, I, I still, I mean. Well, you I, know where to put the mics and you know. Well, that's not technical. That's just a whole other thing. Really? Yeah, that's not, there's no technical to that. I guess not. I guess what do you think about it? Oh, I mean, explain I mean, to me. You got your mic on Well, okay. <laughs> okay, if you're a technical person, technical stuff is about exact measurements and uh, I won't do it the same way twice because I feel like every situation is like is different mm -hmm. and the people are different the way they hit their instruments are different the way that blows it the way the guy hits the drums the way the singer is and um, see, I don't know if anyone even notices that if there's like they say if they look at listen to 10 records that I did in the last year or two that none of them sound the same Mm. There's no sound. Yeah, it's not a sound. I'm like, I'm like a, you know, I'm a servant. I'm not a technician. You and, know? and what does what, what happened in L.A. have to do with what you with, with that? Well, because I saw how Bruce Botnick and those guys worked, and they too worked out of, yeah, you got to know your shit, but it's all feel, mm -hmm. you know. And it's all like, and it's 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 managed people management too. It's like make getting people to do what they do well. And a lot of people choke under the, you know, have red light fever and they make records that are not nearly as good as what they could do just singing and playing in the club. And so there's a way, there are a lot of ways to circumvent that and you have to know all those techniques. So in some cases, you know, is that technical? No, that's just more like, you know, so the, the producer is the liar, psychiatrist liar deal, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's interesting. And, and and so then, but when you got to New York, where you were, 
you weren't even in the studio thing like that. You weren't a songwriter anymore. Oh, I was. Or... I was still writing songs. Yeah, and I was. I actually, I wrote a few, like a couple of the records that I did during that time have been, you know, reissued again on these weird labels that reissued okay. crap. So where were you the, recording that stuff? Now? Sometimes back in Indiana, sometimes in New York, sometimes in Los Angeles. It really depended. And in New York, were you doing any production work or writing or, or studio stuff there? First, I mean, I did, uh, I did the first Glenn Blank Branca record, you know, which is still, you know, like in what the position? fucking producer, producer, yeah, hmm. and which I don't know what the fuck what that meant at that point because producing Glenn, it's just like he's gonna do what he does, and I, you know, I just tried to hook up a studio. I hooked up a good place to mix it. Uh, Try to get the mastering done right. Um, what, what 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 what's a good studio? What's that involve? Well, when it that is easy to deal with, when uh, that the musicians can play, that there's not a lot of uh, um, obstacles put in your way of actually doing music, mm-hmm. and at the end of the, and then when it comes out of speakers, and you take it home, it has the same feel. It's never going to sound the same way in the same in different places, but it's still it, the 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 image is still intact mm-hmm. as to what you tried to make. Okay, that is, the, it's a reproduction thing. Um, you know, you, you look at a painting, you know, two feet away in the museum, and you look at it on the internet as a reproduction. Still, it's never the same experience, but it has the same, the, the dimensions are still there, the proportions are still there. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of studios back in those days, you you know, the, the control rooms would be so hyped up that you'd take it home and it would just sound completely fucking different than what you had just done. And you just went, what the hell? You know, because you'd had nothing but big speakers. So you're trying to mix balance music on these giant things that you, you know. So, I mean, it's tougher. Uh, interested in something to do with that, which is uh, okay. In that time period, you're listening to very big records coming out of studios. Like, in other words, in terms of like it, it, it's it's fairly epic in terms of the kind of uh, sonic stuff. Yeah. Uh, relative to what what we do in this era, it's, it's, very, it, it's true. It's and like John Fishback is still likes to make those records. That's how he hears music. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> because I, that's what I'm wondering. Like, you know, like the transmission of. I mean. I'm trying to work out something media-wise. Why would you have gone from... What's the what's the movement from something back then, like The Doors or Electric Ladyland out into... Right. Uh, um, you know, that's a certain kind of product. Like, it's a certain... And, and that's good... In other words, that's there's an idea in which that's good studio work, and then there's... Uh, where we're at now, which well, is the Doors uh, sounds great now, and it's because Botnick right. was really good, and Paul Rothschild, the producer, was really good. And so, what was coming out of their speakers in the studio is what was yeah, is what we hear. They had it together. Okay, so Alan yeah. Douglas always be close. Oh yeah, shit, yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and Eddie Kramer, and, and you know Bones Howe, and uh, Tom Dow. I mean, there's hundreds Tom of Dowd, right. uh, dozens of amazing people so that, that would be a good studio made really good. Knew knew what they were doing because it, it all comes down to kind of knowing what music really sounds like, and then uh, those you know, guys trying to replicate Botnick, it. Was Botnick a musician or was he? A, a yeah, but you know, almost every every good uh, engineer 
you know, is like the, you know, probably was in a band and if they practice, they probably did their homework instead of practicing, you know, otherwise they'd be stuck like us, you know. <laughs> sure. It's, it, I mean, it seems like that to me. I mean, because it's curious now because a lot of guys that you meet running studio stuff or whatever aren't, aren't really like the, the level of, I mean, it's like, it, uh, I don't know, like what goes through my head now is Miles Davis recording. So a guy like Teo Massaro who's a very good composer yeah. and stuff right. like that and, and writer and player. You don't encounter that much sitting behind uh, behind consoles or doing the chopping so much anymore. Now, well, you, actually, a lot of people you do because a lot of those people, you know, the the, the danger mouse kind of people that do all oh, these tracks, so. and so now like tracks, the producers yeah, are back being the people that run the action, like in that world per se. When did that come back? You know, in the last fifteen years of hip hop and the Dr. Dre syndrome, you know, uh -huh. and then Dr. Dre ends up like, uh, you know. Uh, Hans Zimmer with eight eight people working for him making the tracks and he sort of comes in and anoints them. And <laughs> I don't, let me just break a second here personally. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'd rather do this in two because I think because I haven't even gotten to New Orleans stuff. Right, and I think right. it's interesting stuff. So I don't want to take up. If you got something to do? Let me know because we can we can. Yeah, I'm out just chill. I'd rather go watch the Hornets lose and then. Okay, well, I don't want to take up. Your time. I would like to talk to you about some other features, but I, I kind of want to get the background. Of it. Yeah, and I don't want to drive you crazy. So, um, I, but I want to ask a couple more so questions. You get to see the single, see. man. It's like... I, I love that. I mean, yeah, we got to get the single. So, <laughs> so you let me know what you're comfortable with. Yeah, is no, what I'm but, saying, right. you know, because. Uh, that's all fascinating stuff, but it's biographical. I'm trying to get down some more recent stuff, which has to do with being in the present. But uh, well, yeah, I mean that's in, in because I'm 62 and I've been doing this since I was 15. The, the biographical stuff actually has a relevance in some ways. Yeah, you know, it, that's, it, to, it really to is. what the actual why. I would continue to do this and what I actually do now on a daily basis. Uh, and you know, what it so. is, and what I'm interested in is really what it is you think you're doing. Uh, quite frankly, is you know, it's like what I want to get down to yeah. is what it is you think you're up to and what the relationship is between your actions and what you think. Right. Words, well, what do we have and what do you think and what the relationship is? You know, which is so. So ultimately, I'm trying to get down to that. Yeah. This is another thing, but I, but uh, let me see. How, so, you, so you left New York, came to New Orleans. Um, in that world of New Orleans that you showed up in at that time with your, your ideas about New Orleans music and, and, and that, and, and when, you, when you got here, were you instantly recording that stuff? Were you playing with people? What, what was happening? No, I was mostly going back to New York and working because it was funny. The minute I left New York, everyone kept calling me back to work. Yeah. Go figure. The world. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I was, I have never, ever even to this day, the world that I was like really interested in, none of those people have ever really given me the time of day about anything, nor are any of those people slightly interested in any of the kind of music or anything that I'm doing. And so New Orleans, you know, I had, you know, it was very, very myopic then and Still, basically, as we you see. You mean they, the people in New Orleans I mean, don't have an interest in you? Or, or, right. And, uh, and only, I mean, the people that I worked with were, you know, immediately or started playing, you know, Kid Jordan and Kalamu and the people that were on the fringe who were not. And But the there was always this division in New Orleans. There was like the white scene. Uh-huh. And then there was the black scene. And they didn't really cross that much. And I thought that was absurd. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because in New York, it wasn't really that strident mm. like that. And I always thought, well, that's what we were trying to get rid of here. And yet here we are in New Orleans, and it's back. We might as well, you know, 
and you know so so did you feel this, that that was really the dialectic in music was had the, I, I felt I felt it was very much um, you had Quint Davis and the the jazz fest saying uh, get out of here these are our darkies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and that was the vibe it's like you don't want to come here and with your New York shit and pollute we don't want you polluting our darkies. So you make, already had enough of an overground conscious. You were those people were conscious of you to that level where they they were already taking that opinion. Oh yeah. How did they get that? <laughs> how did they get that conscious of you? Um, I don't really. know. I remember. I'd already done this records with Schofield, and so somehow they knew. Basically, the vibe was. Yeah, you do. You take this, you take jazz and you take all this shit and deconstruct it and there's no gigs for you here. Go home. Mm-hmm. We got it. There's not enough gigs for us. And that was, you know, the Mike Polera talking out, you know, now James Singleton was never like that, but virtually everyone else in that crowd was kind of like that. Mm-hmm. What me. do you think it was they were defending? Um, you know, they have the collective IQ is not quite as low as the collective IQ of the Neville brothers, but you know. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it, well, it's interesting because you're talking there about like I'm, 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 uh, those are people. Uh, we're talking about years here. This is this like 80s, early eighties, early eighties, eighty two. And so at that point, um, are these are people like when you're talking about Quint Davis or or, or uh, well, Torkinowski is also a player, but uh, right. we're talking about um, different people like the people that you moved here that you had the passion for were uh, Booker. And, yeah, well, the, and, I, I can put it almost simply as like the the black musicians of New Orleans have always been very supportive uh-huh. and the white musicians have never been right. supportive. Uh-huh. And Simple as that after about? 30 years. I just basic dumbass shit. You know, I mean this, that, that, you know, people are very protective of their turf and that that's uh-huh. what this, and that's the worst possible thing you can do as a musician or as an artist or as an entrepreneur as anything. And it's so, it's why, New Orleans often just stays, you know, why there was never a great Astral Project record. And it was one of the greatest bands I ever heard 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they would well, play it. Yeah, it was just I've beyond. I've never heard it sound good. I mean, that way, the way that they say that it was then. Yeah. Oh, I, mean, well, I don't think by the time you got here, I think they weren't doing that no, anymore. I'd actually like but, to know that there's an interesting line of question because I, I think that's a feature of New Orleans music. I've been through, uh, I, I've been, I can literally pinpoint three very, very uh, creative periods that you could call them scenes of music here and seeing them completely uncaptured and virtually ignored right. and not talked about. Right. And you end up with this vestigial, like... Right, just this, it's, it's like ether, ether, ether bullshit. bullshit. Yeah. And, and you're like, wait a minute. And so, you know, and I can see those roster products, the same thing, you know. And But, what, you know, what, what interests me is that somehow people are very interested in what goes on here, even though they didn't see it. They didn't well, hear it. The, they didn't. I know, but, but the people, like in New York, you couldn't like, you know, drop a pin on a sidewalk without somebody noticing it. Yeah. And everyone noticed every little thing in every scene. There was always some schmuck from something that, you know, the pre-internet fanzine world and yeah. all that. And whereas New York, in New Orleans, seemed like everyone was going out of their way to ignore everyone else as much as possible. And then there was the, and, and so to me, it was like, to come here, it was like heartbreaking because the Jazz Fest, I always thought was my like religious holiday. And to go here and then, and I'd come here and I'd hear like Johnny Adams and Bobby McFerrin with Torque and Singleton and, 
and Vidakovich backing him up, backing them up, and Tor and Johnny and and Bobby having a cutting contest. I mean, yeah. trying. It was like that may have been the, one of the greatest sets of me. I mean, as far as vocals, never heard anything like that in my life. And never couldn't have happened except for the fact that at that point, the jazz fest was pretty loose, and it was all these. And they, there was actually, and Allison was still around. There was still this creative, creative force going on, and it wasn't uh, about. Tell money. me about what, why Allison was important. Well, Allison, you know, was. Uh, can you give her last name too? Allison Caslow. Elson Caslow Minor, Minor Caslow, Caslow yeah. Minor. Um, Allison, like, again, you know, we're talking about having this overview of why is Zanakis connected to the Neville brothers and connected uh, to Peter Stanfield uh, because, because it is. And it's the big, you know, the big mother load of, of people doing amazing things uh, uh, for over centuries. And it doesn't matter whether it's last week or 500 years ago. Um, and Allison, I think, was really tied into that. Plus, she was really tied in. She really understood on the first-hand level, you know, that the Mardi Gras Indians, they were really a cool thing. And she was, like, the first one, I think, to bring them out of New Orleans, you know, uh -huh. brought them to the kitchen in 83. I remember I was like, Whoa. We recorded the Golden Eagles, right? Right. right. I, think, I, think it's, I mean, I just think that's a pivotal, yeah, fairly that's, pivotal yeah, that's one of the, in terms of a lot of things. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things I think is funny about that, and it comes back to your thing about uh, Balkan music and Eastern European music uh, uh, that you heard then and you thought it was very modern, is that we've somehow drifted back. Out. Clearly, what you were doing there, it's not a documenting of the ancient. It's clearly just to happen to be what was going on. Yeah. On the other hand, these days, the mind frame is that that recording, along with the Eastern European stuff that you would have heard, is some kind of uh, documentation of a culture going it doesn't have the quality of currentness to it, it the people don't even want it to they want it to be right. something something passe what the fuck is that about <laughs> I mean, really like you know i mean like you were I mean, there like you recorded i mean i know because yeah. we all know who monk boudreau is in those people right. it's like they're a guy down here you know he's like what do you it's got working, Show me he's your like equipment. a tv you know, he's yeah. like a TV repair guy, and then uh, you know, three or four times a year, he put on a suit, and he they would sew together and smoke a lot of weed and smoke a lot of cigarettes and drink a lot and have a party. It was like a social club, social club, social a sewing social club that had this music, and they'd uh, and Geech could kick ass, you know. I mean, Geech, the way his drumming really glued that together, and the rest of it was like you know, it was like neighborhood grooves. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Cubans would laugh at him, you know. I mean, just because it was like, eh, the guy in the Miller bottle, he's not holding the clave, you know. Um, but, you know, to me, that record, you know what that record was for me? That was like when I came here and the engineers were, I was really disturbed by the fact that the engineers all thought what they did was more important than what the musicians did. Mm -hmm. And it really disturbed me. And I thought, well, I better, I better learn how to do this shit because... I ain't going to be finding anyone to help me with these people around here. And they're all very stuck up about it. And, and, uh, stuff sounds thin and nasty. And they're kind of like, you know, they sit there for an hour and make the bass player not get any <laughs> coming out of his, mm -hmm. you know, try to erase all the finger. And I'm like, I've never seen this in New York. I mean, you know, I mean, I've, yeah. you know, it's like, gee, I recorded, uh, you know, so Jenny Jackson that, and all that stuff, and I and I never saw anyone. I never saw Dave Baker, who was one of my mentors, do that. I never saw Joe Furla do that. What are these people doing here? So I started to learn, and thanks to Oz, 
I just volunteered and I recorded a few things and they came out really good. And uh, people around her heard them and hired me. <laughs> It's like that. So that was, that was the, the first, first gig. I, that was your first, first gig. He was ever, working for Rounder. That was the first thing I ever recorded. That Golden Eagles record and it lived a two track. And then I got all these gigs doing live the two. I, mean, I became like it's a it's an amazing <laughs> thing. I mean, since I showed up yeah. in New Orleans, I showed up here in 1989. I mean, my 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 impression was, that, I mean, it's still that way. The first thing you hear come on, it, you know, when people decide it's Mardi Gras, the first right. thing that comes on is that record, right? It's like they made the decision, and, and that's the relationship. Well, that, that, and then the the Willie T record, and then yeah, the, yeah, and, the, now, and the Chapatulas record. The those Chapatulas three, record, those, those three, three records, and they're more like you know, and, and, you know I mean, the thirteenth ward. At this yeah. point, I played with a lot of those guys. Yeah. Played, played played with Bo. You know, my my feeling. I mean, like I played with Bo. The guy is terrifying. Make your eyes roll back in your head from how powerful at that time, like his performance. Who's that? Were, so oh, Bo. Bo. Oh, yeah, Bo was like performances were like. I mean, it was so shocking. Yeah, no, he would. In your face that you, it was like a Howlin' Wolf kind of thing yeah. almost, like where he so, took over like that. I, you, I used to be on set. I mean, it took, yeah. it took me over. I'd be like, I, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, it's it shocking. And so, so the, it's an interesting thing, though, because, uh, you know, I, what a, one thing is, though, that that appears, did that appear to people like a commercial idea or what? The Golden Eagles thing? Yeah. Well, the rounder at that point was funny because they had that guy, Ron Levy, who was, got, who was, um, wealthy dude who had went to bb king and said i want to play with you i'll play with you for free and bb king's like free good. <laughs> oh yeah come on. you know so <laughs> at least that's the story free you know? is good yeah free is good so then he became you know bb king piano player so you know after that and then anyway but ron was really and i remember being really disturbed at that because ron was bragging how they were had to the security was costing more than what he had to pay the band mm. and i was just like oh my god why would you tell some why would you brag about that mm. you know but that to him he was like man i'm getting over and i was like oh jesus and then he put out an album called safari to new orleans and i thought well that's see he's not really missing it here isn't he <laughs> so ron and i so i was always whereas scott billington was like always the nicest guy in the world and all the other people at rounder but levy just and after i did Lev, you know and then i think i called him like a colonialist in musician magazine interviews and then i didn't work for them anymore well i mean I think, I think it's interesting because new orleans is one of those places like it's rife i mean you know like my knowledge uh, you know my, my experience of working with musicians here is that it's one of these places where you know the viewpoint of people showing up like even like now even half the kids that show up on the street playing trad jazz or whatever right. the fuck is going on there are people that are still doing this 19th century thing of looking for the noble savage right well, yeah. and they come here and every bugger I've come across whether from if you know from Smokey Johnson upwards is, is some it's not the bottom of the pile when we're talking about the greatest musicians in the world but they're extremely sophisticated people, and they've seen everything, and they yeah. know every kind of music. And so the idea that the, the idea you know the presentation of them as as some kind of like savage is so gone. Oh yeah, no. and now you have people migrating here en masse to find the noble savage. You're going, what the fuck are you people? What the hell is America this? needs it from Kermit. <laughs> it needs Kermit. But even Kermit, I mean, I know Kermit. Kermit was the first guy. On I know the block Kermit's with, great, you know, but the way the way that Kermit has become like this icon of something. And yeah, exactly. 
must be totally face. mystifying to him too. That's mystifying. I, mean, yeah. I watched it going in front of me. I was in that band at that time. Yeah, I mean, it was like it was like it was it was totally bizarre. Yeah. But but what I want what I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get to is what are the forces that cause that kind of a misunderstanding with. Well, it's that's just the way they play. New, I mean, Treme has done the same thing, just reinforced. It's like this stuff. I mean, I found that when I did that record after the storm, and they hired Nunsuch hired me and Wilner to do this New Orleans record. It's supposed to be presented to me as a double record, and I want you to make snapshots, find everyone that would have been playing in New Orleans like the day of the storm, and give me like you know like 10 people on each, a cut of on 20. And the next thing I knew, you know, the Quint Davis and Rosebud and all the different, the booking agents and all the people that run the Roots Music World had come in and were like, well, we want this and we have to have our people. That, and, and pretty soon it was like, oh, it's only going to be one record and, oh, and Randy Newman's doing a cut and Rye wants to produce one of them. You don't mind, do you? And, and I just saw that multi-fanged monster come out and me and Hal were like, what the fuck? Mm. These people are, you know, and we, I did manage to slip Charlie Miller on there, <laughs> right, right. you know, but otherwise it was like all the stuff that, it was just, it was just an astounding thing to, to witness and it was very subtle. And, and so I just, I think there's so much money, you know, where the Jazz Fest the Jazz Fest is at the crux of keeping everything the same and keeping the money in their pockets. And they have such enormous power and they do put the music for the Hornets and they do, they choose this and every convention and they, they like, you know, that's who, you know, who's, when Mitch Landry started his cultural, the cultural economy committee, you know who that is? Yes. It's Quint and Robin Burgess, mm -hmm. who's the most hated person in the jazz world probably. And, uh, you know, and her husband is certainly plays his ass off and writes and does his thing. But whatever she's done is like certainly not. It's funny that it's probably not helped him a whole lot. What? So, you know, that's I think that whole I think it comes maybe does it come down to, you know, basic that um, before people learn any better, they a lot of people that with they, they gravitate toward this power and they want they think there's they think there's something there they think there's actual power in having more money and more clout than other people and all that and then you, you know so i just see it as like a mass delusion you know but people and, want they, they, they're people want the delusion it seems to oh yeah they want the delusion in new orleans they want the fucking rudyard kipling shit you know i mean i'm sorry you know oh all right you don't have to apologize to me i watch sorry it going, it's going, in. going on it's going on every <laughs> what changed between 1982 and now uh well way more way more stuff obviously in 19 i mean you, you go through any all the various subsets of music right now and on the good end what changed was that the brass band tradition has been brought back and x y and z are doing it really well and another bunch is just redoing rebirth set and but there's a lot of people thinking about it and what charlie joseph kirk joseph and uh and the early philip and and shorty did 
was really revolutionary in a lot of respects, and now there's those kind of bands all over the world. So they they made a difference, and and that that's pretty cool to see, you know. And it's not really controlled by I mean, you know. And Rebirth is still just as out of control and crazy as they were when I worked with them when they were totally seventeen. Amazing. I know I played and, it, and uh, and so. Uh, that part is interesting, and then what, like Michael White, is the, like a lot of the uh, um, getting a lot of the young people, like you end up with Hot Eight, and you end up all, all these, and what Shamar is doing, um, you're ending up with a lot of people that are way more aware than than their counterpoints were 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Way more aware of the potential of the world, though, so they're not stuck in the New Orleans ghetto. They're not nearly as suspicious of white people, suspicious of media, suspicious of being, you know, so they're, they're actually on a racial level. The younger musician thing is way, way better than What's than their perception older. of their, uh, of, of, of what it is that they're trying to do now? Uh, they're just trying to, like, have fun and get over. I mean, Shamar is basically, say, just trying to get his stuff out there and he wants to do... You must do this rock and roll stuff. They, they, all these guys that like you know, and Shorty, they, they, they see, and you've you've experienced this as I have, which is like, ain't it's hardly any sex as good as like, you know, having ten thousand people listening to you play and getting off on it. <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. So once you feel that, you say, "Yeah, I want to do that tomorrow." <laughs> and so these guys are like. Yeah, Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. And, so and, is, that, is that is that is that the experience that you feel like you're contributing to? Like you've had this studio, like you, but you know, I mean, I met you when you had the boiler room, or we're just getting the boiler room together, and then right. you had the studio, and this now is like, I mean, those days there was Kingsway, but this is now the premiere. I mean, this is the studio that you go to, even for major artists right. outside of here. Right. And uh, how come they like this studio, and how come they like this place? You know, I don't know perfect storm of something. I mean, look around, you know, there's shit lying around everywhere. There's, there's like, you know, Playboys from 1966. There's books and all kind of crazy stuff everywhere there. It's like the, the junkster. It's like Shopsons of, uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, basically it, all the equipment is maintained. People can come in here and do whatever they want. And there is no real sound other than the fact that that room sounds good and you can uh, twist it up any number of ways you want. And and mostly, I think Sean, Sean has had a lot to do with being dealing with the people from the outside because the funny part is she knows nothing about any of this business. And so these people that are major heavy hitter players will call her and she just treats them like anyone else. So yeah. she treats, we tend to treat everyone <laughs> the same and then we try to work out stuff with people on a local level and um, that's you know marginally successful because um, well you know how it is it's like you know that anyone who calls up and is and has to ask about rates is automatically you just you know that they don't know really know what's going on Mm -hmm. You know, so, right. <laughs> so that so so New Orleans is like an uneducated. Now, why is that? Well, because what you want to do is you want to make great records in your studio, and great records begat work. You don't want to make shit records. Okay. And so, 
So race. So people is... that so when when some I meet some kid in the in the bar in the middle of the night and and he says yeah check out my shit and I listen to it and it's really good. I'll go out of my way and maybe I'll spend thirty hours with the guy and and make three hundred bucks. But what happens is that 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 goes out and then the next level somebody because of that comes in and spends ten thousand dollars, and that's the way. So you really have to go total like pure. My my job is to my job is to help, and my job is to get. Who are you helping? The, well, the artists. The artists. All the find artists the find the find the artists that are really good, mm-hmm. and then make sure. It works, mm-hmm. and then that's about that's in this most simple. And then I can either do it as sometimes I get called on to write, mm-hmm. play, help arrange. I'm constantly if I'm the producer, I'm constantly helping arrange. I mean, because people are just, I mean, a lot of bands they they want, but they're clueless. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really don't know. You go, okay, let's see. They're going. I'm like. Check this out. Just go. And all of a sudden, the whole thing grooves like a motherfucker, yeah. and the drummer feels like he's flying. Otherwise, it feels like it's going like. Yeah. And they're like, How'd yeah, you know yeah. that? Yeah, I'm like, well, I don't know. How did you, why, you know? Because that's why you make holes in things. And that's what why was it that made you get a band like that in the first place if they had those kind of problems? Because. Maybe the songs are really good and there's a potential there and you know that pop music is best made by amateurs and so is it guiding I think so always has been. I mean like Ellington's not an amateur yeah well I guess that you're saying that's pop music but that's more like <laughs> still that's that's sophisticated music sophisticated. Right? everyone had to everyone had to play their ass off just to play the shit at that point so i'm not i'm saying thinking more like every post, office in a brill building post, that's what yeah, I'm yeah post new york dolls post new york okay, dolls like since then okay, whipsy since then. Mu- like okay whipsy music white people singing in english playing guitars you know whatever you know i mean right gotcha there's that's, not that's funny, but there's you know the funny part is there's i'll say i'll deal with a lot of incredibly tasteless black musicians but very few of them can't play and can't sing uh-huh, whereas the white people will often be like overeducated know everything about everything and and can't carry a tune but feel like it's their they're empowered to be a star or something like that. How, how are we going to bridge this, this division is, here yeah this gonna... is like wait a minute how does this work you know it's like you want you think you deserve the world because of, and you know, anyway, this is like the joke now. It's like anytime you have a good idea, just Google it and you'll see that there's 1,300,000 of them already. That's the same exact. So you figure, okay, there's nothing really new. So what is it that we do? That we manipulate language in our own for our own amusement? What are we doing? You know. So, so what what are your ideas now? What 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 are you into? What's going on? And uh, you know, in, in in your head, what do you think is important to do? I mean, you have a lot of you know, you have a lot of creative potential in terms of what you could get moving. What's right? You know, right now, I just I'm just working every day on music like I always did. Today, I practiced the hand drums for two hours. Really? And so I just sat there hand. and I just went. You know, I started went and started just doing that, and I started going. And then I started, and I started, and then I started, 
slowed it down and did more like that. that. And then, then I just, so I, I, but I went like methodically. So I'm starting to do that. And I, uh, and so I just think in terms like, what am I doing? I'm trying to like get better as a musician every day. Mm-hmm. And then that, as far as the studio stuff, and I go look and sing about microphones. What's good? What's the, what are my friends that make records? What's some new things that they liked? What works? What translates here? What about this new this? So there's that constant. There's the translation, the uh, gear that you need to translate. Mm-hmm. And because and you want to, I mean, you know, there's, it's so great to make stuff that zillions of people listen to. Even in New Orleans, nobody even knows that it's even happening. And then, you know, and you just go to Marquis like any other schmuck. But at the same time, you know, you. But I, think, I, you know, it's, it's a great thing. Ideas are different. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's like it occurs to me in music, like, you know, like you, like you, if you have, you know, Mashiach's band come in here, they have vastly different ideas than, say, when it used to be, uh, who used to come into the boiler, you know, the Allen Ginsberg coming into your Yeah, studio. well, Mashiach's stuff, I mean, like, they made a record, and they, I didn't do a Mashiach's record, but. Oh, I thought it was on over here. But whatever. It, it, you know, and it was like, and I was thinking, like, why. Mashiach, that's another one. I thought. That didn't sound anywhere near as good as she normally sounds, you know. She's a strong singer. Yeah, and it didn't really. It sounds sort of like uh, periody or whatever. Well, everyone's really into that right now. I mean, I have a big problem with that. But I'm writing a bunch. Yeah, but you don't. You don't make the stuff sound like an inferior technology from 60 years ago to uh, on a sonic level. That's like really a a moronic fucking thing to do. It's moronic, but it's going on everywhere. Yeah, and, and it's just like. Hello, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, we have the right now, and we have this all this equipment, and we can make purposefully lo-fi. We can make, but the whole idea is, you know, it's the the, the postmodern uh, wet dream now, you know. Let me ask a question though, like in terms of like you were talking about, like uh, New York studios and LA studios at that time period, and obviously the records that they made then were, you know, whether it's Pink Floyd records or Jimi Hendrix records or even records of uh, Yasha Heifetz, right. So, in theory, we have that superior technology that you're talking about now. Like somebody can do that. What, why is why are the recordings coming out it's, inferior? It wasn't superior. The high end is no better sonically now than it was in 1958. Okay. So we had the microphones, the microphone preamps. What's changed is the storage mediums, and what's changed are the ability for the anybody to you know, you know. Whereas this metric halo thing is is good as anything else just about and it's sitting here at the table you know yeah, yeah. and and um, and that's what's changed is like the access because it used to cost like half a million dollars to get in the to have a place to make and plus a building to do a Yasha Heifetz record or, or you had to do a Horowitz record you had a silent environment with a beautiful room where you could put the mics 20 feet away and get that piano to sound like you were in the fourth row of the concert hall and now you know uh, we got to we got digital stuff that'll do that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so you think it is there too that the technology now is at the level? Oh, technology is well, you can do fucking anything, and so that means you can choose. You could make a record that sounded like, uh, like, the Holy Mole Roundies in '63, same old man sitting on him. You know, same he could, he could, he yeah. could do that, yeah. and it's really <laughs> no different now. That was like they had a couple of. You know, U87s and and to a good mic preamp in a fucking studio, uh, and same, Bernard same, Solomon's same. going, hurry up, hurry up, or whoever it was, you know. Same shit. And uh, so it's you know, you know, sonically, it's not that different. And then 
vinyl is no, you know, people think there's these amazing differences when they do digital or shitty analog or all that. No, you know, it's just people, you know. So the idea, so, you, so, you, so, so let me, I, just to finish up, I'm just trying yeah. to get, get, get here in, in an odd thing. Uh, so the difference like you've been through a lot since since those days let's say if we went back as far as as far as indiana and, that and, right. and, 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 and relative to now how have your ideas about things changed well totally in that it's really different when you're 30 and you're trying to do things and and it's all out there in front of you and then when you're 62 and you've made your 300 records <laughs> you know and you've played thousands of shows and all that and and you've uh, you know done this, done that. You got your ass kicked, kicked and kissed, and all that. And then you just then it's a different vibe. And then you think, okay, well now what? Is this uh, and the the now what? For me, is just like practicing. And the big thing now, I mean, I'm gonna I'm trying to do this thing where I'm gonna go across the country on the bicycle with a van, you know, a vehicle that has something like a metric halo, you know, recording system in it, has a, a system to podcast and play a show in every little town. And so I've been doing all this old church music so I could just fantastic. So I could come in to a town and if I had to play in the church, I could actually play in the church without making them vomit or run me out of town on a rail. And uh, and Moose is going to go. And so this is like You're me and Moose on the vi and Moose will do the poetry and the music, and then we'll every time we'll set it up. So we'll, we'll if there's musicians there, we'll and I'll have all this music. I'll have a like a, a Dropbox with the music, and so people can learn the stuff. So we'll come in there and we'll have a rehearsal with the band, do a show, take off, ride the bike another anywhere from you know. If we're in Massachusetts, it might be 15 miles to the next town. If we're in the idea of starting Portsmouth, New Haven, up there in the corner and cut Caddy Corner across the country all the way to San Diego. Why do you like this idea? Because it sort of sums up my, you know, like it starts back with the, you know, when I was an endurance athlete and it gets that part. And then it's also being, you know, old and going, fuck it. I'll just, doesn't matter. And what about recording people playing with people and playing in your situation? Well, that's what's great. And then you get in, because then we can do, I've got like the out stuff. I've got sort of the country bluegrassy kind of thing. I've got these songs. So I've got, you know, 40 some years of songs. Mm. And when they all, and they're all, they're in all 400 of them are sitting up there. Mm. And, you know, only about half of them have been recorded or out there. And some mm. of them, you know, some of them I catch money on, mostly not, you know. And so uh, that just, the whole thing just amuses me to go out and have those experiences one night because it seems to me like the trying to do a tour and sell CDs or sell downloads, all that stuff is completely antiquated. It's, it's like the end of a whole oh, era totally. and nobody really knows what else to do. Yeah. So everyone's still just like jerking each wall. other I, off. I, I over had a hilarious the, you know. conversation with Dave Perners. Dave Perners got a new studio in his mm -hmm. house and he was, he invited me over because he wanted to guinea pig his studio and he invited me over. So I have this new quintet I'm working with. I'm excited about it. And then, you know, it's funny because I got in this conversation afterwards that was actually not far different than a conversation I might have with you. It was like, so am I, Dave says, so are we, if we were going to make a record, what's my position, you know, one of these things, which 
is totally humorous from the position of the fact that they both. I mean, I'm at the tail end. Dave Perner had bigger, had serious recording contracts, but I was at the tail end of the recording contract period too. And there's no meaning to the idea of a record anymore. It has no. What's a record? Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> a record was a product that you had a contract to make. At a, right, yeah. At that, that, and then they would finished. try to... Yeah, no. <laughs> so what are we talking about? I'm well, now, it now it's more like little little mini pieces that you put out, things that are collections of things that have something to do with one another. Well, and you, yeah. you put them out there to do we whatever. We into our own, our own internal Alan Lomax and Moses. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like, I'm, like, I am my own Alan Lomax. <laughs> well, I mean... See what happens with me. You'll see. You'll see in like twenty years. Then people are start digging up stuff you did ten years ago, yeah. And that's and so you find that unless you're on that, unless you're on a career path and you're really good at promoting yourself, and you know how to do that, and or in some I know people that have actually just sort of fallen off the turnip truck and had things, great things happen. But people tend to be more interested in your work way after it happened. Way after. <laughs> Way after, yeah. way after. So, and, and, and so in the future, are you looking now from, from, from here on out, you're, you're still looking for new ideas and for things to do? Huh? Well, you know, the whole thing of working with bands, I still hear bands and individuals that I think, wow, this will be fun that, you know, if I work with them, you know, a million people get to listen to it. If I don't work with them, you know, 500 people, you know, I, and, and there's, and, and that's simply because I know how, I know how the drill works and how to organize them and how to let them look at their own music in a way without any sort of humiliation, maybe presenting it, understanding what the space of the music is making sure that all the stuff is, the tempos are all straight, it's all in tune. And then you do that and you, you know, I think of everything like, like, you know how a lot of the really out music was always recorded badly? And I always think, well, my job is to take that out music and music, outsider music and present it in a, you know, it doesn't have, you know, not like a Pink Floyd record, but just like, so you can listen to it. Yeah. So it just doesn't, so it's not missing <laughs> All the elements in terms of bad production. It's not over smushed. It's not modernized. That's the great thing. Like we were talking about the Doors records. Those fuckers still sound good. And a lot of, and the television records that didn't adhere to 1977 still sound good. Yeah. Whereas a lot of those records from that era, they sound so cheesed out. They, yeah. They're period pieces. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Whereas it, a, so if you try not to make period pieces. Yeah. Whereas, like, when I made the Flat Duo Jets record, it was like I was almost, I was trying to make an over-the-top, fucked-up period piece. And look what happened. Yeah. Jack White, you know I mean? That's what happened. Yeah. Unbelievable. That's his, you know. Like, the only rock star yeah. left. So, and what a, what a, last, this is really the last one. Um, what are the most notable things that stand out in your head that, you, that either you've recorded or you've done over all this time? Like, what, you know? Notable for what? Right, that's what I'm asking. Actually, essentially, is if you, what's the notability of anything? There's nothing that really stands out, either that you've recorded, particularly, or people, or or artists, or anything. It's, no, I mean, it's a general. Vista. It just seems like a big wash. I mean, I love the that Stay Awake record. That that always sticks me. The 
the all Disney record in 87, oh. 88. Okay. And the, the work on that, because I worked on that with Hal for like a year. and Did you do that record in New Orleans? No. Where did you do it? Uh, New York, Los Angeles, a little bit in Georgia, a little bit in Bearsville. Uh, I think that's it. So that stands out. But that was that was an experience that gave me or got to do push the envelope, and it sort of gave me a career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as weird as that is, because there's sometimes people just don't get it. Sometimes until you just like slap them in the face with it. And that record was like a pretty much of a that was the one serious that a bitch slap, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. And for whatever reason, and then and the monk thing too. When I got to do that thing, and the monk record in '84, and that really changed everything because all these people that I loved and respected suddenly noticed that and went, "Okay, you're on our team now." <laughs> You know, and that 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 really changed. And so I just see these things as like the work you do your work and you do it, and it's like okay, you do your work. But those moments where you feel that everything suddenly is now sudden now because you 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 know you're pissed on the right tree in the right neighborhood. It sounds to me like those those are the projects that empowered you to be able to give other things significance. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that. Yeah. And and that that, gave you the ability. That helped, and then uh, okay, but you know, Uh, that's great. Thanks, Mark. Part one, (laughs) yeah, that's (laughs) it. We didn't even get to.